If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In September 1519, the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan set off on a fateful voyage from Spain in order to find a route to the Spice Islands. In the centuries since, Magellan has gone down in history as an intrepid, chivalric adventurer, his name forever linked to the first circumnavigation of the globe. But according to the historian Professor Felipe Fernandez Armesto, in his new book Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan, The explorer's career was shaped more by failure than success, and he didn't even intend to circumnavigate the globe, let alone achieve it. I spoke to Felipe to find out more. What is the traditional story that's told about Magellan, and how do you think that people have got it wrong? Well, thank you, Elliot. The the traditional story is completely misleading and everything that you know most people in your audience think they know about Magellan is wrong. Now, the traditional story is that he was a, 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 an intrepid navigator. That much is true. The rest <laughs> you know, is where it goes wrong. He didn't circumnavigate the world. He never even intended to circumnavigate the world. He wasn't inspired by geographical or scientific 
curiosity. He wasn't inspired by religion. He turned to religion late in life, as so many of us do, when everything went wrong and he had nowhere to turn except uh, to God. Um, he, he wasn't pursuing you know, scientific knowledge. His motivation was social ambition. You know? He was an orphan. He was a scion of rural Portuguese nobility. He was down on his luck. He was educated at, at court uh, extremely inadequately in order really to serve the king in war. And that was his only option really in life. And in order to escape, you know, from this world of restricted opportunity into the glorious, you know, recovery of his noble status that he, he dreamed of. He modeled himself on his reading in romantic, chivalric literature. And he really set out to realize in his own life the typical trajectory of a hero of what I call the station bookstore or airport bookstore pulp fiction of the day, in which a hero who's down on his luck, you know, sets out on an adventure by sea, explores unknown lands, and acquires, you know, great fiefdom for himself. The usual fade out is marriage to a princess. Well, Magellan didn't get that far because he died before he'd realized any of his ambitions. Your book really is a chronicle of failures in many ways. And yet Magellan has this heroic, noble legacy. How do you think he's come to be remembered in that way when, as you say, you think that's entirely wrong? Well, I, I think, you know, Winston Churchill, you may remember, said that he expected to be favorably judged by history because he would write it himself. <laughs> well, Magellan wasn't, you know, he didn't have any talent for, for, for writing, but he did employ a, a stooge, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, um, a ghostwriter, if you like, Antonio Pigafetta, this, this um, uh, Vincenzo gentleman who sailed with him, and who seems genuinely to have admired Magellan, because of course, although Magellan was a terrible failure, of course he had some good qualities, and one of those was a sort of charisma. I mean, he was very good at winning um, loyalty and making friends, and Pigafetta was devoted to him and shared some of his proclivities. I mean, Pigafetta also thought that he was touched by divine favor. He thought that God had, you know, spared him from what had been a terrible voyage. You know, 90% of the effectives on the voyage died if you you know take out of the, the reckoning all the people who deserted or were captured by the enemies on the way. So Pigafetta felt, you know, that he'd been spared and he he kind of celebrated uh, his survival by writing an account of the voyage in which Magellan is an, an unparalleled hero, an epitome, really, of, of chivalry. And that's the, uh, that's the image that was passed down. And because nobody else's account really, you know, had any resonance or sold in the market or survived, in many cases, most of the accounts that were written at the time didn't survive at all. Pigafetta's kind of held the field, and it was really he who crafted the myth that until now most people have still believed in. So how have you gone and got behind Pigafetta's myth that he's created here? What sources have you turned to to uncover a different side of Magellan's story? And what kind of man did you uncover? Well, that's a 
absolutely essential question, Eddie. Thank you very much. Because, of course, you know, history is about sources. It's really you know, a kind of dialogue with the dead. I was on the story, and what I do is I find some dead guy or woman, and I interrogate them using, you know, whatever sources they've left us, using whatever words or images um, they've left behind. And in Magellan's case, the difficulty is that he wasn't a very prolific generator of source material. The other people whom I've written biographies of in this period, Columbus and Vespucci, were kind of uncontrollably loquacious, and they left vast amounts of writings. Poor old Magellan, you know, just really wasn't up to that. And you have to reconstruct, you know, what happened, what was in his mind uh, from what other people said or from, you know, records, testimony. He, he himself was involved in lawsuits and in one of them, quite a lot of his own testimony is recorded. He generated a few documents of his own, which if you read them, you know, with a real sort of humanistic discipline that I, because I'm very old, was taught, you know, to apply to the reading of texts when I was young. If you if you do that with you know, real intensity, and I think I've I I've read all the sources, probably more searchingly, I I can say immodestly than anybody before, I think I've been able, you know, to see much more of what this guy was really like. And very distinctly to be able to trace how he changed, because, you know, this young man with a chip on his shoulder goes through a lot of, you know, transformations in the course of his his great epic voyage. You know, that happens to people. If you go on a vast voyage and you suffer and you 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 have mutinies and bloodshed and and battles and you're struggling against, you know, these strange, unknown people whom you encounter in seas that no one has ever traversed before. And if you're pounded and pummeled by storms, and if you're starved and, and, and sickened, you know, all of those things have an effect on you. And you can see Miguel changing, you know, you can see him becoming more ruthless for much of, the, much of his life, and then becoming more religious at the end of it. You've painted a pretty terrible picture there of this three-year voyage that eventually ended in a circumnavigation of the globe. But let's talk a little bit about that voyage. So what were some of the motivations behind it and how much awareness did the crew have of the hardships that they would face on it? Well, I don't think anybody was aware how of how tough it would be because Magellan's assumption was that the world is a lot smaller than it really is. You can't be absolutely sure how small it was because his own geographical notions were very vague. But he seems to have subscribed to a similar view to that of Columbus and Vespucci. So he was probably calculating the world to be up to maybe 20% smaller than it really is. So that makes it far easier, you know, to get from point A to point B. If you haven't yet measured the distance, the, the world is small. It's likely to be a shorter distance than it really is. And nobody knew, you know, what the Pacific was like. No one, as far as we know, before this voyage, had ever crossed the Pacific at one go. You know, Polynesians had gradually explored it. But this is a vast sea, you know, 
it, it took three months to cross. And of course, you know, unless you, you know that and can plan for it, you're going to run out of food. And that's what happened to Miguel. By the end of that voyage, they were literally eating you know, leather that they tore from the, the lining of the, the masts and, you know, struggling to chew on the stuff with gums swollen by scurvy. It's, it's not, you know, an attractive fate. So I think no one was expecting that. And of course, if they'd been expecting it, they wouldn't have been so stupid as to go on the, the voyage in the first place. What they thought they were trying to do, I mean, that's very hard to answer, but broadly speaking, there are two possible answers to it. There's the sort of official answer, you know, what was, what did the king of Spain think they were doing? What did he order them to do? And that's fairly straightforward. He ordered them to find a new route to islands in the Orient, the uh, islands that we now call the Malaccas, uh, where three of the most valuable commodities in the world grew. That's nutmeg, mace, and cloves. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how much nutmeg, mace, and cloves you use when you're cooking nowadays, uh, um, Ellie, but it, it, I mean, those were the things that everybody, you know, wanted to enrich their, their dishes. Uh, and there was a huge market for them in China and quite a big market for them in in Europe. So it was really important to try and control trade in those commodities. So that was the King of Spain's official objective for the voyage. But Magellan, who's the others, I mean, this is the other objective that we know about, in my opinion, wasn't really interested in that. The literature has tended to assume that he went along with the king's agenda. But I don't think it's the case at all. He knew perfectly well that he wouldn't be able to trade successfully with the Malaccas because the Portuguese were already there. The Spanish didn't have a chance, really, of um, taking that trade away from them. What Magellan was really interested in was the Philippines. When he was living in Malacca, he was looking eastwards for a, 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 a field in which he could realize those ambitions of becoming a great lord. Uh, and he chose the Philippines, I think, first of all, because as far as he knew, there were no Europeans there. Secondly, it was very near China and access to the China trade. That was the biggest economy in the world at the time. That was very valuable. And thirdly, because he had a lot of reports of the existence of gold in the Philippines. <laughs> and gold is, you know, one commodity that you can be absolutely sure that you can always trade at an advantage if you can get um, hold of it at source. So those were his reasons for focusing on the Philippines. And those two objectives, you know, are you going to the Spice Islands or are you going to the Gold Islands? That conflict was really at the heart of the voyage and goes some way to explain why it failed. When Magellan actually reached, after all of those sufferings that we've already described, when he reached the latitude of the Spice Islands, which he knew were on the equator, he didn't stop. He carried on, you know, looking for the the Philippines. And it's incredible, you know, when you think back to what they'd been through, <laughs> that, that he was still, you know, pursuing this objective, even at the cost of most of his men's lives. That does seem to me to be, you know, uh, uh, just a, an example 
of a degree of obsessiveness that you don't find outside the world of these Renaissance explorers. In the popular imagination, Magellan is often bundled up with other figures like Columbus into this, this kind of age of discovery, age of exploration, in which men were motivated by the spirit purely of discovery. But you're telling a, a bit of a different story here, aren't you? That there were commercial imperatives and um, financial imperatives were perhaps just or, if not more, important. No, I wouldn't say that financial imperatives were more important than spirit. I mean, basically what these guys were doing was hopeless. You know, I mean, Magellan's voyage was fantastic even when he conceived it. I, I mean, there was no real likelihood that it would uh, succeed. And indeed, most of the voyages of that era were failures. And so why did people go on you know, investing their lives in these chimerical quests? I think you've got to go to something more than material gain. I think Social ambition, as I suggested in Magellan's case, was very common. You know, in those days, how did you get on in society? How did you escape into the acceptance world if you came from a background of limited social opportunity? Basically, there are only three things. You can fight in a war, you can go into the church, or you can go exploring. Yeah, and so that was a very common route of attempted social ascent. And people wanted, you know, titles and nobility and lordship so much in those days. It's very difficult to think oneself back into this very aristocratic society. But people wanted these so much that they were willing to risk their lives to try and achieve them. And secondly, you know, along with the social ambition, very closely allied to it, it's these literary models. In Magellan's case, it, it's you know, very much his, his only reading, the only reading that we know about apart from travel literature, was chivalric romance. And as I've said, that was the standard fiction of the day. Even people of modest literacy read this kind of stuff. And it's all pretty much, you know, has the same sort of plot. It's always, you know, the foundling, the, the orphan, the person excluded from his or her inheritance who goes off on an adventure, and it all ends up happily, usually, in the in the end. And so Magellan followed that same trajectory of this fictional literature uh, and achieved all of it except for happy outcome. <laughs> because, of course, you know, he, he kind of immolates himself, really, by a final deed of recklessness which leads to his death. So we've got recklessness on the one hand, and earlier you spoke about obsession. I wonder if you could add a bit more colour to the portrait that you've offered there of Magellan as a captain. What would it have been like to be one of his crew members? Very dangerous, because he had a short temper, a rather cruel um, sense of humour, an utter ruthlessness, and by the end of the voyage, an awful lot of blood on his hands. I mean, pretty much, if you didn't go along with Magellan, you would be garroted or marooned. I mean, those are the two, <laughs> two most likely outcomes if you, uh, if you crossed him. And I think that he was, uh, I mean, I think his ruthlessness and, and cruelty were responses to the danger in which he, he found himself. The, the voyage was very badly organized from the very beginning. The crew were divided into factions who really sort of hated, um, each other. Magellan was engaged in a power struggle with his co 
commander and with a bunch of captains and officers who'd been appointed by one of his uh, great visceral enemies. So, I mean, you know, this whole voyage was conducted in an atmosphere of, you know, just psychological stress, trauma, which was, um, you know, very, very taxing and which the way Magellan responded was by being utterly ruthless and eliminating his um, his enemies. On the other hand, I think one of the the ways in which this, these factions formed was along class lines. And Magellan does seem to have been very popular with this sort of ordinary crewmen who seem to have adopted him. I base this really on a, a, admittedly a very limited amount of, of evidence. It's the interrogation of a cabin boy who was captured by the Portuguese. Um, and you get from his the testimony that he gave, you get the sense that part of what divided the men of the expedition was class hatred. And part of Magellan's skill was in harnessing the resentment of the ordinary, you know, guys at the bottom of the pile against the rather, you know, snobbish officers who were Magellan's uh, enemies. So pretty much, you know, I think it was pretty ghastly being uh, one of Magellan's men. I mean, especially when you were starving to death or being killed. He did have a rapport with, you know, a very important element, which were the, the you know, the ordinary guys at the, at the bottom of the, the, the command structure. And this factionalism um, eventually led to one of the key moments of crisis on the voyage, which was a mutiny against Magellan. What can you tell us about that? Yes, well, of course, there was more than one mutiny. There was an extremely dramatic mutiny when they finally get to the, the Patagonian coast and they decide, or Magellan decides, that he's going to winter in San Julian, a port on the coast of Patagonia. Uh, and that's probably um, you know, a fatal decision because no one in their right minds, you know, would want to spend a winter there. The other captains wanted to get on and accomplish the mission, or at least, you know, find something that would enable them to go back to Spain uh, with honour. Uh, but Magellan was going to condemn them to this um, this dreadful winter. And by that time, you know, I mean, if they spent a winter there, it was kind of obvious that they weren't going to be. Uh, achieving a commercially viable outcome to the voyage, because the longer it went on, the smaller was going to be any possible profit. They're seeing the, you know, their chances of success receding. Uh, And at that point, um, resentment bubbles over and the leading figures in the command, apart from those who are Magellan's intimates and um, employees and, and relatives, the, the other commanders, rise up against him. And there's this tremendously dramatic confrontation, which in the book I think I've been able to reconstruct almost sort of moment by moment, and I've even been able to reconstruct sort of elements of dialogue in which you, know, you can you can actually capture what people literally, the words they're literally using to each other. You can get these from the, the testimony that was gathered subsequently by inquirers into what happened. And the culmination of the mutineers that Magellan is triumphant and he overcomes the mutineers. I'm not saying it's creditable morally, but as a, 
a, a, a piece of management of the crisis. I think he did this brilliantly. So he, he overturns the, the tables against the, the mutineers and puts the leading members of the, the mutinous faction to death, or he, he maroons them on the coast of Patagonia to die, uh, pardoning quite a lot of, uh, of others. But of course, the tensions of that mutiny generate keep cropping up again and again in the course of the rest of the, the voyage. So he scotches the snake, if you like, but he never really succeeds in totally killing it off. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, in the end, he needed God to redeem him. And I, I you know, that's at least, if, if you can't have any other virtue, have at least that degree of humility. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We've got mutiny, we've got discontent, we've got starvation, but there were also obviously some remarkable elements of this of this voyage, and these men would be seeing things that they had never seen before. What were some of the most spectacular sights that they encountered? The, the most impressive moments are, are, are not those of you know, encountering fantastic sights or having new experiences. They're the moments of just sort of ordinary daily life, little bits of tranquility. Pigafetta, the guy whom I mentioned who wrote the account, which is so favorable to Magellan, absolutely loved fishing. <laughs> And and then he gives us some descriptions of you know where he's peacefully you know fishing over the side of the um, uh, of the boat. There are moments where you can see that the psychology of escape is at work. Now, uh, one of the most 
um, grueling passages of the voyage was literally the passage through the Strait of Magellan, which is basically you know, a wind tunnel where the wind's against you. And it's a very grueling business most of the time, unless you're very lucky. It's usually quite a grueling business getting through it under sail. And one of the pilots, you, know, you can see him kind of escaping from all the, um, the horror by just, um, you know, just writing his log in a terribly matter-of-fact way in which he just records the uh, direction the ship's taking. He just leaves out <laughs> all, all the bloodshed and all the mutiny, all the strife and all the, the anxiety, um, and all, even, even leaves out most of the terrible weather. But I suppose, you know, if you, if you want the, the spectacular sights, you've got to focus, I think, on, on three things. First of all, um, the people who Magellan and his men encounter. Now, they're encountering people beyond the reach of the science of the time, you know, especially when they're, they're sailing along the, the Patagonian coast and they, they meet these, uh, these people whom they, they, they characterize as giants because of their exceptional stature. They literally, you know, witness cannibalism. They're, they're really encountering the monstrous fringes of the world. If you look at late medieval maps, you know, the edges of the world are populated by these fantastic monsters that people believed in that have been described in ancient Greek and Roman um, authors. And they were sort of expecting that they would find things like, you know, giants and, and Amazons and strange beasts and so on. And, and of course, you know, if you're expecting that, when you see unparalleled, un Precedented um, flora, fauna, and folk, you don't see what's there. You see what you were expecting to see. Um, so I think that's the first big shock that they're encountering this, you know, unsuspected world of people who were unknown to the ethnography of the time. The second big new experiences, of course, are of landscape and and weather, and um, they're, they're sailing into latitudes that no text known in Europe had ever recorded when they're down, you know, beyond Vespucci previously had claimed to get to 50 degrees south. I think he was lying. Magellan gets, you know, to over 53 degrees south, where um, his crew start um, sensing, I think, even more cold <laughs> than was really there, because again, you know, the novelty of the experience impacts upon them in a sort of hyper-realistic fashion. And then, of course, they sail through the Strait of Magellan, so, you know, they're in this strange world of brooding cliffs and, um, and, and towering ice and, and, and Strange animals, you know, seals and, and penguins are the, the only um, life that they encounter because they never see, when they're sailing through the straits, they never see any other people. So they're in a, it's a very strange experience. And the final thing, I suppose, you know, is the, is the hardship. Um, uh, I, that voyage across the Pacific is very ironic because they keep saying to themselves, how kind God has been to us. He's given us a following wind. <laughs> but it just goes on and on because the wind, in, in a way, is just blowing further from safety 
into the unknown, and they don't know when it's going to end. And the psychological novelty of you know facing that trauma, that's probably that probably makes the most benign sight that they had encountered, which that was that of the the calm waters of the Pacific with a, a favorable following wind. In a way, that was the worst thing <laughs> of all, because it was like being in um, some you know, very favorable prison which <laughs> you're never going to be uh, able to get uh, to get out of. So I would say those are the three sort of encounters, visual, sensory encounters um, that everybody on the, the voyage had and that probably affected everybody in similar ways. As we've alluded to, and as listeners may already know, Magellan, of course, never made it home from this voyage. What can you tell us about his death? I think he contrived his own death. Now, you can't be sure about this, but there are some very strange things about the way he died. When he gets to the Philippines, he seems to have sensed that there was a possibility here of political change, that these islands which were divided amongst all these warring kinglets, most of whom hated each other, um, that they were sort of on the point of experiencing at least the possibility of political unification. So he decides to back one of the chieftains. It's a very common strategy amongst conquistadores, you know, in a way, Cortes does something similar at much the same time uh, in in Mexico. So he backs one of the chiefs against the the others. And this means that he has to uh, involve himself in a, what I suppose I'd call a show of force against one of the, the rival kings of the region who doesn't want to go along with this, this policy of submitting to um, an overall leader. And Magellan confronts this enemy in a way that is calculated to court disaster. Uh, I mean, he does everything, really, to make the task harder. Um, he launches his attack in the worst possible place, where he's very exposed to the missiles uh, of the enemy, uh, and where his men have to wade ashore, uh, and, and where their artillery can't cover them. I mean, it's, it's as if, if he'd set out you know, to, to fight this battle in the worst possible circumstances, he couldn't have done better than he did. So that's very puzzling. Why did he take this this risk? And his sort of answer to this at the time was, um, I'm going to show that just a handful of Spaniards can beat, you know, vast numbers of these uh, uh, inferior um, enemies. But, you know, did he really believe that? That's not the calculation that such uh, a commander who hitherto he'd had a lot of experience of battles and wars, and you know, it's not the sort of thing you'd expect a, 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 a serious, informed military commander um, to do. And the second thing is that he refused help. He took a very small number of men to fight a very large number of native foes, um, and he wouldn't accept any help, even from the king whom he was backing to be the overall ruler. Of the island, he actually continually refuses to have any help, uh, and that in itself is very odd. And I think that he was following one of these, you know, chivalric, romantic 
um, kind of models. And he's following the model of Roland, who one of the most famous figures in the history of chivalry, who supposedly died because he was too proud to summon uh, help when he was losing a battle. And then I suppose the final thing is that uh, he goes on, you know, fighting. <laughs> He's sort of in a rear guard, and the, all his men are retreating back to their, their ships, or most of them are retreating back to their ships, except a small knot of them who, who are either very seriously wounded or killed alongside him. And, but he just goes on, just as he'd gone on with the voyage, when all was hopeless, and when it's obvious that it was a failure, he just drove on beyond failure to disaster. So in this final battle, he stays there, you know, fighting until he is killed. And why does he do that? Well, you know, it's a sort of suicide. He'd given up. He realized that all his efforts had failed, that he wasn't going to achieve the happy ending that he was striving for. Uh, that he'd failed in his duty to the king. If he'd gone back to Spain, he would probably have had his head chopped off. He'd certainly have been in disgrace. He couldn't stay where he was because he backed the wrong potential ruler. Um, he hadn't got the gold he was seeking. He hadn't got any of the spices that the king could command. So he, he, was, he realized that he'd been a total failure, and he embraces this heroic death as, you know, what nowadays we tend to call a great career move. <laughs> you know, there are times when people genuinely think that the best thing that they can do is die, and I, that was the situation he was in. Eventually, only 18 crew members made it all the way back to Spain out of around 270. How did people react when they returned home and, and shared the stories of the voyage and what had happened to Magellan? Well, the, the, the voyage had an immediate resonance. Uh, I mean, everybody wanted to write it up. You know, court chroniclers were kind of tripping over themselves to interview the survivors and to get the story out there. It's almost like you know, journalists struggling nowadays to get a scoop. And the story was of great interest, not only because of its epic qualities and because the few survivors whom you mentioned who did get um, back in one of Magellan's ships they did circum they did complete the circumnavigation of the world. So that was considered to be an, you know, a bit of an interesting breakthrough. But above all, although Magellan, you know, he's usually credited with making a profit on the voyage, or his the survivors came back with a profitable cargo of spices on board. That's a myth. In fact, the the value of the, the cargo they brought back didn't remotely cover all the the costs. That myth is based on a misreading of uh, an inquiry by the Spanish Crown's agents in 1537, which produced some figures which were phony and were, were ridiculously massaged. In fact, the voyage was a failure even commercially, but it just raised the possibility that maybe if it could be done again, <laughs> you know, perhaps in a better way with better planning with the value of hindsight and experience, maybe maybe the a, a, a sort of route Magellan had followed could be profitably exploited. And the Spanish crown does make you know, further efforts to follow up on that um, possibility, but they all fail. Uh, so even you know, that one hope that uh, Magellan's voyage inspired in the contemporaries who survived it, 
proved in the long run to be illusory. So after all of this research into Magellan and his voyage, how do you think that we should view him today? Well, I think one should simply stick to the truth, (laughs) which was that, um, like all the rest of us, he was a mixture of virtues and vices. In his case, the vices considerably outweighing the virtues, I have to say. But nevertheless, in spite of all the things that I've said about him, uh, the fact that he was a failure, the fact that he was reckless, the fact that he was ruthless, the fact that he was murderous, I mean, all of these things are terrible. And of course, you know, he did have good qualities as well. I've mentioned the sort of charisma that he exercised over those who were loyal to him, the sympathy he seems to have traded with the, you know, ordinary blokes on his um, voyage, the intrepidity and courage, which are, you know, part of the other face of of recklessness. And the fact that, um, you know, uh, although he turned to religion late in life and did it in a way which doesn't entirely reflect credit on him because he kind of sets himself up as a kind of prophet and starts trying to convert indigenous people to Christianity, which he knew nothing about. (laughs) So even his religion isn't entirely creditable, but at least, you know, he had the humility at the end of his life, um, you know, to recognize that he, he, he wasn't the architect of his own destiny that he set out to be and that you know, in the end, he needed God to redeem him. And I, I you know, that's at least, if, if you can't have any other virtue, have at least that degree of humility. That was Felipe Fernandez Armesto. His book, Straits Beyond the Myth of Magellan, is out now published by Bloomsbury. If you'd like to read more about Magellan's fateful journey, then type his name into the search bar of our website, at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Hold up. 